The conversation that you're about to hear was recorded over a year ago. And it's a conversation between two people who are reaching to understand their own positions on things. So both me and the guest, Natty, are working things out on mic. And I'm sure that both of our positions have changed on things we're talking about since then. And so when you're listening to it, keep that in mind, really. Some of the areas that we go into are political and about gender. Those are the areas that I think we're most likely to have changed our opinions on. And politics is a strange thing to try and define your position on anyway. And words themselves aren't always helpful. And I think that when Natty is talking about politics, she makes it quite clear that she is on a journey to define herself and to understand where she's coming from, who she is and what she stands for in what she says. But if you're not listening out for it, you might miss that. So I thought I would point that out. Also, the other thing is, obviously, as happened over a year ago, some of the current events that we're talking about are, of course, no longer current. They are now history. And so this project is an oral history project, amongst many other things. And so, again, this episode should be considered in that way. Running into my grandma's room and looking at myself in the mirror and then running out again because I wasn't allowed in her room and I knew that she'd get like, really angry that I was in her room. <laughs> to put a disclaimer on the front of this episode, do not play around children. But I kind of think that if you analyse the idea of God and the beauty of what God's supposed to be, who is forgiving and loving and is a life giver, then how can he send someone to hell for not believing in him? Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Natty. Hello, Natty. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) The first question that I ask people is, how do you know me? I know you through Sam, he used to drum for your band, and that's the first time I think I met you was at one of his gigs. And you go out with him? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you remember which gig it was? Oh, God. Um, No, actually. (laughs) I think I've only been to two of your gigs. Okay. Maybe three. Yeah, I think it was two. It was one of the ones where we played okay rather than the last one. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But it was all right. The last one I was so drunk I didn't notice. Well, no. (laughs) Most people were. The audience had a great time. For more details about that, listen to Sam's conversation. And the other question is, what do you do now? I don't do anything. I'm actually recently unemployed, which is quite exciting, but also very terrifying. I hope to be able to do more things that I'm interested in. So you've just given up your job? I've just given up my job, yeah. What was your job? I was, the official title is a service coordinator, right? which is a mixture of reception work and building management. Sounds fun. It was riveting. (laughs) (laughs) I think the biggest problem I had with it is it's so methodical. You had to follow protocol every single step of the way. And if you didn't, there's a problem. Okay. And so I mean, kind of bureaucratic as Very well. bureaucratic, mm. incredibly. And you had to write everything you did down, very corporate. And I'm not that sort of person. I like to make things up as I go <laughs> along. <laughs> so when was the moment that you decided to quit? Well, it's kind of funny because I'd been wanting to quit for a very long time. 
probably for about six months. But obviously the theory of the, the current climate yeah. and not having anything lined up and not really knowing what I wanted to do prevented me doing that. And then I had a rather awful day and I decided it was time. It was literally you had a bad day and you just went with the feeling. Yeah, I just handed in my notice the next day and was like, I'm 21, 30 more days and I'm done. Well, 21 to be exact, but... And what was that time like when you were like, you'd finished your job, but you were still working it? I think I was probably best at my job I've ever been. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mainly because I didn't really care anymore. I didn't really mind if I was doing a bad job. Because you were dealing with clients all the time, so you had to have that kind of client-worker relationship, which is very polite. So I was too scared to kind of break into normality, which probably made it harder because I was being a very stern person and not really knowing my clients on a kind of personal level mm. and it meant that I was able to break that and just become be personal yeah nice um, which was good it made it much more enjoyable well I think I think if we were all able to do that in our jobs all the time we'd all be better at our jobs yeah very true I mean I, I find it's funny when I first started working I used to think oh I'm going to have a different persona at work and a different persona at home yeah and I still need to keep some differences but the closer I get to who I am at work, the better a job I think I do. Yeah, and you become more real as well. Yeah. Like you find yourself kind of constantly battling at work, kind of going, well, I'd normally joke about that, but I don't know whether I should. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, and yeah. yeah, yeah, that helps everything, I think. And so you're now you're unemployed. Yes. <laughs> how does that feel? It's the first day of unemployment, so... Today? Today is my first day of unemployment. Wow. So, it's not quite hit me yet. No. Give me a week. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. Freaking out. Do you feel... So, at the moment, does it feel... Do you feel free? I feel very free. Incredibly free. And sort of thinking, like, oh, I have all this time to do all these things, like finish my book or continue with my poetry or do some volunteering and actually get more involved with the things I'm interested in fantastic well I hope you manage to have the freedom to do that stuff it's so hard to find that freedom I know from personal experience the book is it a a novel it's a children's book oh fantastic yeah so I'm hoping it'll be hopefully if the language is good like simple enough I'm aiming for about seven eight seven eight year olds yeah okay and it'll be a picture book with pictures in it because I remember being a kid and getting really annoyed that I got to a certain point of reading where there weren't any pictures left. So I want to have like huge illustrations in it and make it really exciting. Are you illustrating it? Yes. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And you're a poet as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Th- that's, the, that's the funny thing. I, 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 when I first said to you, oh, let's do this conversation, and you said yes, that night I wrote down words as something to talk to you about and I don't quite know why I don't remember why I wrote that down and then a few months or whatever later I found out that you were a poet and I was like that's weird I had noticed that just in our conversation that words were important to you when did you start writing I remember the first poem I wrote as a kid and I was underneath my grandma's table and she lives in Taunton I was underneath the dining room table and I wrote a story about a bear well, a poem about a bear being in a cave. And I was acting out the bear, and then I went down and wrote it down. And I think that was the first poem I actually wrote. Wow. How old were you? Oh, God. Probably about six. Yeah. Just about, maybe a bit older, actually, because I could write. And I don't know where the actual... I know it's in a scrapbook somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) 
thing. Wow. And then another poem I wrote was about being a bee and uh, about stinging something. You've carried that on. Yeah, I do. now, and you're 24 now. I'm 24 now, and I studied English literature and creative writing at university. Ah, I studied creative writing and theatre studies, ah. so I did that. Did you enjoy studying writing? I think I became very nervous about my writing, especially because I was studying it in conjunction with English literature, so I was reading some amazing poetry and some amazing writers and felt that I'd never be like that, and that's all you really want to do is be the best at it. Yeah. And then you end up mimicking their work as well. Yeah. So your writing doesn't feel like yours anymore. And that got very quickly lost. And I sort of stopped writing, apart from doing my coursework. But I've just started again. So That's fantastic. A lot of people I know who studied creative writing, it did make it harder for them to write. It's an interesting thing. Because, I mean, I, I found creative writing... I didn't stop writing, but I found the process quite hard at university because mm. there was the tutor mm. so you we'd critique the stuff but there was rather than in real life where everybody's opinion is equal yeah. there was someone whose opinion was the one that would mark yeah your work. So. and I found that hard whereas recently like a couple of years ago I've joined a well, maybe not even a couple of years ago but I joined a writing group and I thought that it would be the same experience that I wouldn't like critiquing each mm. other's work but actually it's brilliant because we're all equal and there's yeah. no tutor going this is how it's done yeah. and I know best <laughs> so we can all support each other to do what we want to do and we don't have to like worry about this kind of authoritative judgement mm. that the tutor thing yeah. gave to the process at uni and you went to Abba didn't you yeah I went to Aberystwyth my brother went to Aberystwyth he got married there actually because oh, wow. he got married where, where him and his girlfriend had met and they met at, at Abba so I've, I've been to Aberystwyth a few times. What did you think of it? I loved it, but um, it was very small. But then I wanted that because I grew up in London. Yeah. And I wanted to get as far away from London as possible. And I looked at the map and saw Aberystwyth. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to get to. Really hard to get like to. Five, five hours yeah. on the train. And it goes through most amazing countryside. And you do feel like you're in the middle of the nowhere. There's only one train there. And you have to wait two hours and the train turns around and goes back. (laughs) So it doesn't really... There's one platform. And it's very, very small. And you do get, like, kind of stuck in this bubble of the ABBA world and nowhere else exists while you're there, which is great and also very bad at the same time. (laughs) You forget the other outside world exists. Yeah. Aberystwyth is definitely a bubble place. Mm. Did you enjoy the experience of that? Definitely, definitely. The clubs and pubs aren't anything to like speak greatly of, yeah. especially like peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got the sea. You've got the sea, and I had a I had a room in second year that was just opposite the sea, right on the seafront, and you could hear the waves crashing over. Lovely. And then it was so beautiful, and it was great, like watching seagulls learn to fly and things like that. Like you'd never really think you'd ever get a chance to see in your life. Oh wow! It's just outside your window. That's um, amazing, actually. I mean. I mean, it means you were paying attention, though. I mean, you could live by the sea and not not see seagulls then to fly as well. Yeah. As you know, I've got a very long list <laughs> of things I'd like to talk to you about. I think I'm going to tackle the most complicated bit first. Okay. I've got an image of you now sitting under the table when you're six. And my niece is six years old. 
and I've seen her sit under the table she likes to sit under the table her dad is I'm phrasing this in a way that will not give away her identity okay which is why I'm struggling with words her dad is Jamaican yeah and her mum my little sister is not she's yeah. white and one thing I don't want to do on this show is to talk to everybody who is a different ethnicity to me about their ethnicity but also I was thinking about this in a way that's almost a racist thing in itself because I talk to Irish people about them being Irish. Mm-hmm. I talk to uh, northern people about them being northern. Yeah. And so it seems weird that I would sort of rule that off. Yeah. And I'm not really talking to you about this because you're mixed race, but because when I meet you, I see a future version of my niece. Okay. Uh, and then when I'm talking to you now, it's, I think you look quite like her potentially how she will look when she's grown up I mean first of all I guess is is the term mixed race okay with you um I prefer mixed race to half caste oh fuck yeah <laughs> well obviously which is still being used while I was at school and I mean half caste is the word I learned at school yeah I'm a little bit older than you but yeah that's the word that everybody used at school and I didn't really think about the meaning of it until a little bit later, and then when I found out the meaning of it, I completely see how it's a hateful, racist term. But, I mean, later on in my life, I've been on Equal Opportunities training courses a number of times. And when uh, when I was up north, the training course I went on, we were told that mixed race wasn't an acceptable term anymore. Oh, okay. And we had to use the word... Uh, the phrase dual heritage. Oh, that's a tongue twister, isn't it? It's a bit of a weird one. (laughs) I mean, you know, you're sitting in a room, everybody in that room is white, apart from the person taking the course. (laughs) I think he was was a Hindu or a Sikh uh, gentleman. And I was sort of thinking, well, I'm with all of the... Because I work in the library service. That Mm -hmm. means that the majority of my colleagues are middle-aged women. Okay. Middle-aged white women. And... It seems to me that changing an acceptable term on them after they've just learnt to use the acceptable term yeah. kind of set things back a little bit because in the course they were all saying, you know, why are you changing? Why are you mm. changing the f- terms? And the the other thing that they told us was you're not supposed to say ethnic minority. You're supposed to say minority ethnic, which is just what? that's mangling yeah. language. Yeah, I mean, as a poet, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know that you can't even ethnic just doesn't sound right as an end of a phrase I'm never good on if things are verbs or nouns I I don't know my girlfriend knows actually (laughs) and I guess that was around the time that my niece was born I was learning that stuff and I've always cared about the concept of racism right Mm. because I'm uh, brought up by liberal left wing hippie-ish parents who and uh, you know I've always identified with the underdog and all that sort of thing and so you know growing up I was like you know racism is bad and obviously it is bad and yeah but I'd not as a white man ever experienced that kind of prejudice yeah I mean that said I, I mean I was bullied quite a lot in school so I have some familiarity with bullying yeah but I was bullied because I wasn't an acceptable I, I don't know why but maybe because I wasn't an acceptable version of masculinity maybe because I had 
trouble at home and that came out at school and they could see I was weak. Those are the two yeah. of the reasons I think I was bullied. But I wasn't bullied because I was who I was. Yeah. I mean, I was. I guess I was a bit because I was English in a Welsh school, but, but it wasn't a race thing. Okay. And... Sorry, I mean, I know, I will, I, I'm, I'm aware that I'm kind of giving a monologue very early in, in the conversation, and that's, <laughs> that's not right. normally what I do. That's um, when my niece was born, my gran didn't want to see her, because she was mixed race. And, I, you know, I, I'm very close to my niece, and I try to be there for her as a male role model, because her dad doesn't live near her. Mm. And sort of walking around holding her hand in the street, just me and her, suddenly people were giving me different kinds of looks than I'd ever really experienced. Okay. And that made me very angry. Mm. And my sister would tell me about, she would walk, push the pram around, old ladies would come over and they'd say, oh baby, and then they would see that it was a mixed race child and their face would change mm. and they wouldn't be all like, yeah. oh this is lovely. They would be like, don't approve of that. And yeah. I, I think that, I'm sure she got that from both races, to yeah. be honest. And now, so I'll finish this one <laughs> now. now I work with children who are wildly diverse in ethnicity because I'm in London now. Yeah. So, you know, Cardiff, Bristol, well, Bristol's kind of, there's a lot of Jamaican, but there's also a lot of white and it's quite segregated. Cardiff, there's, there's, there's other races, but again, it's quite segregated. It certainly was in my school. There was only white and Asian kids, I think, in my school. I didn't know any, any black kids. Now I work in really ethnically diverse areas. In fact, quite often, I'm a white man reading to a room of majority black children or you know other ethnicities as well but in certain of the children's centers I work in it's majority black children and I'm aware that I'm reading stories and I'm looking for stories with black characters Mm. I'm looking for stories that 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 speak to them and when I think about you maybe this is you know again this is a maybe there's there's an element of racism that I'm defining (laughs) you by your ethnicity but I see a kind of positive future Mm. for my niece like you seem to me very grounded in lots of ways I've used that word about your boyfriend as well (laughs) Uh, and my niece is very grounded now she's six um I hated having that experience of finding that people judged you or judged her or judged me for being with her but then I look at you and I think here's a future here's a positive Mm. future that I mean how was it for you growing up mixed race well like kind of it's quite funny when you say that you notice people looking differently at you than ever before because if you grow up not really understanding or knowing you don't realize you're being looked at any differently than normal Mm. because it's the majority Mm. of the time it's a funny one it's it's really funny and a lot of mixed race people say the same thing is that they were picked on from both sides so then you have to spend a whole time kind of trying to identify with with yourself and the um, cultures that you absorb is the best way to put it, I think, because your experience is what makes you who you are and what you're, what people tend to be, let them, their, the cultures absorb themselves with the culture that accepts them the most. So then you take on bits of those cultures that accept you and reject the cultures that have most problems with you. There were times when it was really bad and there's times when it's 
it's great and I think it's the, the culture that I've kind of absorbed is very I hate to say it but it's very kind of white middle class so you know yeah. I'm kind of a bit like that hippie that goes around you know and that's, that's how my that's how yeah that's how my niece is going to be like yeah. that's the you know she's grown up in a white middle class family so that's the, the bit you absorb yeah. and that can cause some difficulties as well sometimes because you still relate to black people as well and you, you know you're very interested and you chat to them but then because you've absorbed all the white culture and then they're like you know you, there's it's harder to relate as well but my brother he's absorbed the black culture a lot it's hard to think about in a sense of it because it's just how it is yeah of course <laughs> of course um but I mean, there was a point in school when I was very badly bullied by that. And it was actually from one of my teachers. She was very, very racist and separated the class. So we had the class of the white kids on one side and the black kids on the other side. And I was Seriously? constantly being moved around, which then meant I couldn't actually form a friendship base. Jesus, because you didn't um, fit into either of those I didn't fit into images either. in her head. Yeah, so that was quite strange. The reason I talked to you about this in a way that I've... I mean, I've, I've talked to mixed-race people on the show and haven't even revealed that they're mixed-race. <laughs> Nobody even knows. It's because you're half Jamaican. Yeah. And my niece is half Jamaican. Yeah. You told me off my earlier that you lived in Jamaica. Yes, um, for a year. Uh, when I was... I think... I hadn't learned to speak yet. So I was just beginning to pick up words. And then I went to live with my grandparents in Jamaica. And while my mum studied. And I lived there with my half-sister and my grandma and grandpa on a farm <laughs> <laughs> and we had chickens it's it's, it's funny because I don't really remember very much of it and I haven't been back no. so I'm pretty sure if I went back I'd probably start having all these sensory memories of being a child there were they your earliest memories then? not my earliest no I've got a few other memories I mean the only the biggest memory I have of being in Jamaica is running into my grandma's room and looking at myself in the mirror and then running out again because I wasn't allowed in her room and I knew that she'd get like, really <laughs> angry that I was in her room and that's like the only memory I have and while I was there my mum visited I think once and then the second time she came she took me home it's an interesting from my experience and I don't want to talk generally because I don't know fuck all but it's an interesting culture Jamaican culture in terms of it seems that in a way it's really matriarchal mm. because the women kind of call some of the shots mm. but in a way it's the opposite it's of that because the men do fuck all yeah. I mean I'm not <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, not wanting to generalise about a, a whole race or culture yeah. and uh, I know there's lots of Jamaican men who don't fit this stereotype I, I meet them all the time yeah. I mean did that have any kind of what, how, what's your relationship to Jamaican culture as I stopped seeing my dad the Jamaican culture thing got kind of rejected entirely and never really got back into contact with my grandma or anyone so like I've completely lost that side of my life and it's not really in me if that makes sense yeah. it's not really I haven't absorbed it or I haven't really kept it or know much about it and like apparently I had a Jamaican accent when I came back because I learned to speak out there oh, yeah, yeah. a patois accent which I've completely lost and yeah. it's quite funny because people go oh speak Jamaican for me then and I'm like well I can't <laughs> <laughs> that's a weird thing to be asked in, in itself yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never ask someone to, to speak Jamaican if 
that, I don't. Yeah, yeah it's, it's quite funny because it's got such a strong accent oh, and it's yeah. even considered another language. It's hard to un- it's well. really hard to understand. I find because I I know pe- family members who have got yeah. patois and I, I just <laughs> it, I don't want like I don't want to look. I don't want it's it's like I, I kind of had these dual issues of like I don't want to. This is what white white man's burden or whatever but like, <laughs> I don't want to look racist so I don't mm. want to like keep asking them to repeat what they're saying I want to be like down with it and get it but yeah. I just I can't understand it and yeah. I really try hard yeah, it's been broken uh, they, it's considered a separate language now it's yeah. patois so um, I'd, I'd argue that's okay then not to understand it um, I guess but they can understand me <laughs> <laughs> puts me at that kind of back foot apparently the Irish and the Jamaican accent can get on really well Totally. Um, which makes sense as well because I know some very broad speaking Irish people and there's this girl I went quite well and it took me like months to be able to understand her and I did the same thing I was really embarrassed about like not not saying I didn't want to say that I didn't understand her so I just smiled and nod a lot of yeah. the time and then now she can talk and talk and talk and I completely get it yeah you um, tune into it eventually yeah it takes a while <laughs> I've got kind of Irish members of the family and yeah it's it's a weird thing like if you've got a different language or a different culture, you can choose to be part of the main culture or not. Mm. Whereas if you're part of that main culture, you don't have a choice. So when I when I meet the members of my family who have a patois way of speaking, they can choose to sp- speak to me more clearly, mm. or they cannot. Mm. And I respect the decision not to yeah. change to speak to me okay but it does mean I can't talk to them <laughs> <laughs> and that that that's kind of I, I've got and I've got no way of speaking in a way that they don't get because okay. they've got kind of the key because mm. so, they're living in this culture and they it's on TV and you know we all we all can understand you know the whole world can understand, understand English but I can't speak any other language it kind yeah. of makes me feel a bit like a, there's something I haven't got that okay. other people have got. Yeah. But then, I guess you're in the same boat if you yeah. can't remember. No, I, how I, to I, do it. I really am. And it's quite funny when I go to get my hair. Like, I get really nervous going to get my hair done because you then go into kind of like a black hairdressers. Yeah. And they're all speaking patois or Jamaican type English. Their ways of communicating with each other are very different from like kind of the. English polite way of talking to each other I suppose but it's, that's how we're seen anyway is the polite class of people and um, I get really nervous I'm a bit kind of like oh my god they're going to think that I'm not them yeah. <laughs> no I bet it's a, it's a whole it's a weird area isn't it I mean it's yeah. like I, I confuse people at work a lot because obviously they're black families you know suddenly I'll be able to chime in about something and they mm. and I'll say oh my you know like for example I'll say, oh, you know, your daughter looks a lot like my niece, and that mm. will, like that. There's a moment of confusion, and, and yeah. hair's really a diff- definite yeah. thing. Like I've learned so much about differences of hair, like the mm. whole kind of adding oil rather than taking oil out kind yeah. of thing. I guess that's something, and yeah. you know, my niece's hair is a big thing because if you don't sort it out, it gets very math like as you know yeah really hard to manage manage. and so that's something and you know she hates it she hates sitting down there and having that kind of gone through and that's not something that my my white nieces have a problem you know just brush their hair and i've been in conversations where i've where i've been like 
you know, talking about different products, so you can use the <laughs> hair, and, 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 and with, 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 you know, parents of mixed race and parents of black children, and, and I, I don't know, it, it's kind of a, a weird little moment that, mm. I don't know, opens things up. I don't want to talk forever, though, about <laughs> your ethnicity, because there's so much more to you. <laughs> I guess the last kind of thing I want to talk about about that before we move to a slightly different area of your ethnicity so and then away away from it as soon as possible do you think my niece is gonna like where do you think that we're getting less like Hmm. racist I guess um I think we are definitely um I definitely think it's slowly becoming more acceptable to have mixed race children and to be interacting with both races or all races that's right our our mutual friend Liz calls mixed race people tomorrow people (laughs) brilliant (laughs) (laughs) which I think is great that's fair I think it's happening I mean still you end up meeting people that kind of make you want to punch (laughs) Um, and I think you know it's just it will always I think there will always be people that have that and I think that's one thing that I'm growing to accept is that you can't change people's points of view a lot of the time and I think the only thing you can do is when you meet people like that is to be as nice and as lovely as possible so then you're the antithesis of their experience of mixed people or but then it's a weird thing because like you've obviously grown up in a to a certain extent in a middle class environment some of your life yeah my niece is getting that too so you're both in a position where you can show people the kind of most socially acceptable version of your ethnicity but then some of the kids I work with like they're lovely kids I'm, there's there's no kid under five that isn't one isn't mm. lovely on, on some level and yeah. I know that when they grow up there it's a class issue yeah but they've also got the, the race issue so yeah. they're, they're kind of doubly in a hard place and so it's I can't blame them for showing when they're older, yeah, as, and as socially unacceptable. And, like you want you want to punch people, but you don't. Yeah. Well, if they punched people because they hadn't got the boundaries or the education or whatever that stops you stop them from punching people, how can you really blame them? You know, yeah. that's that's how I sort of, I don't know, surreal. That's, <laughs> that's a massive problem with class, though, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, one day there won't be any. Hopefully. <laughs> I hope. I well, I I hope so too. I mean, I, class is a big subject of these conversations because, I don't know, I had a lot of working class friends at school and I believe in equality and class is really in the way of that. And I do identify a lot with, with working class people, but then I'm not working class. So I'm yeah. like a tourist, I guess. Similarly, that you're talking about going into a hairdresser's, worrying that they won't accept you. I'm so, I was the same when I was going into the working class white Cardiff areas when I was mm. a kid, you know, like I I wanted to yeah. to, to fit in, to, to sound right, to, to do the right thing. To act the right way. And, yeah. Because it's quite funny as well, like with the class structure that we have, we end up socialising within our own class a lot of the time without necessarily meaning to. Yeah. And so then you end up with completely different social norms of social acceptability and ways of speaking to each other and interacting with each other which is then making the classes further and further apart from each yeah. other and it's a shame really because I think everyone is human and you can connect with everyone if you tried yeah well that's what this 
project's supposed to be about, but just by the nature of me being middle class, <laughs> the majority of people I'm talking to are middle class, and yeah. and and majority of people who I'm talking to are white as well. Yeah. It still sort of seems like a strange thing where I'm like, I, I want to get more working class people, I want to get more people of different ethnicities on the show, but at the same time, I just it has to be people I'm acquainted with. And yeah. so, <laughs> so I am limited in that respect. The last kind of relatively close to ethnicity but not quite thing I wanted to talk to you about is are you a Rastafarian? Yes well I, I don't well I was brought up as a Rastafarian so but I don't necessarily consider myself as a Rastafarian okay but yeah that's the easiest way I've grown up being so I don't celebrate Christmas I don't eat pork and that's all part of being Rastafarian yeah and why don't you eat pork? because it's a dirty animal that's what they have been saying I know people who say that but okay why is it dirty well if you want to be really kind of like academic about it mm-hmm. it's because it's the first meat to decompose so back when the bible was written there was no such thing as fridges yeah so it'd be the meat that would make everyone ill it's yeah absolutely shellfish and makes sense yeah. it makes sense yeah. for when the bible was written yeah and i think that's what it is it's where religion has become very dogmatic and it means that the changing in our kind of science and um home creature comforts aren't relevant to the bible because it's so old yeah um but i still wouldn't eat it (laughs) (laughs) is it like in in your head just a kind of visceral relationship to the yeah well yes and no i mean i mean i had i had a bite of sam's ham sandwich (laughs) (laughs) so you know to, you know, to, to quote Pulp Fiction, pork is nice, you know. Well, it's good. not, though. It's not I think nice. that's what it is. It's funny. It's like, because I've never really eaten it as yeah. a kid or growing up. So when I've then made the conscious decision to try it, I don't particularly like it. I find it very salty. That's fair. It is. Bacon is just like eating cardboard, just <laughs> dipped in salt. You know, I, I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah, say the word bacon and I'm salivating. But that's <laughs> a cultural thing in itself. Yeah. So you don't, and you don't celebrate Christmas. No. That's very liberating. I wish I didn't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> I love that I don't celebrate Christmas. Well, Christmas is com- <laughs> it's a thorny thing for me because growing up, Christmas was when the shit hit the fan in the family. Like, that was, like there was a lot of bad stuff in the family growing up, but... Christmas, it was definitely going to come out. That's because they all got drunk. Yeah, they got <laughs> drunk, and and everyone wants it to be good, so yeah. everyone's like really struggling for it to be perfect. Yeah, and then, and then it's not because there's no mm. such thing as perfection. Ex- well, exactly, and and then people take that out on the other people and themselves and all yeah. that stuff. The idea of not celebrating Christmas. I love it. It's great. To me. I grew up knowing that Father Christmas wasn't real, and it's quite it's quite funny. Really, I didn't really tell anyone. I wasn't allowed to. Well, I could have done. Okay, I do remember telling one person. To put a disclaimer on the front of this episode, <laughs> do not play around children. <laughs> um, I, do, I do remember telling my friend, and uh, she she just refused to believe me. She was just like, oh, I saw him coming through my window. I saw his boot. And I was like, I didn't. <laughs> and I think that's, a, for me anyway, I, I, I like the fact I've always known, because it's kind of like a lie that adults tell children all the time. And I think that suddenly finding out he's not real is oh, must be horrible because you must stop trusting the mm. people that bring you up but then you're taught to like trust adults like you, you can't learn if you don't believe what adults tell you and if they've been telling you this lie forever then 
your whole kind of perception of them is going to fall quite a lot. Yeah, but that's quite an important thing to realise, in a way, that, yeah. that people lie. And, and, and anyway, it depends how you, how you learn it. Yeah. I think a lot of people, they realise that it was a nice thing, that it was a nice... Yeah fiction that they were the pe- the parents were creating a fiction that's i think how i understood it i mean like jen my girlfriend works in a primary school and she's named jehovah's witness kids yeah and she she feels sorry for them because they don't get to have christmas and she loves christmas yeah did you feel when you were in primary <laughs> school that you know you weren't getting any of the presents you weren't getting any of that stuff i was lucky because my brother he's born on christmas day and my mum's family was really angry and annoyed that there wasn't any Christmas and saying that we can really be left out as a child. So we got presents on each other's birthday. So that, that was dealt with. <laughs> cool. So that I didn't ever feel left out in that sense. And and then also we had my brother's birthday that we celebrated instead. I I think as an outsider of Christmas, I don't feel as though I've missed anything. And I kind of sit back and laugh as Christmas comes. Well, it irritates me sometimes, but well, Christmas is, <laughs> Christmas is rampant consumerism. It is. Greed. It is. It's huge. And I think that's kind of what you're taught as a kid as well. Is that you know you get showered with all these presents and things, and it's just a time to be really greedy. And you know you get families that don't meet up with each other at all for all year, and then they meet up for Christmas and. You know, that's the only time you ever see each other, and the whole idea of the kind of Christian sense of Christmas is completely lost mm. in in the kind of consumer version of Christmas. But then there's another kind of Christmas because Jen's family, her mum and her and her brothers, they're, they're atheists, mm. but they love Christmas. Okay. They like love the kind of family get together the ritual of it the excitingness of it they, they, they really enjoy the ritual but they're, they're liberated enough now that if they're working on Christmas they can just say well we'll have Christmas on the 23rd 27th <laughs> I mean that, that's how they, like, mm. they, for them Christmas is a sort of state of mind Yeah. and I used to feel like you like if I wasn't thinking Christmas is when everyone shouts and cries and, and, and bad things happen, I thought, well, it's just it's just greed and consumerism. And I still think this. I, mean, I hate I hate when Christmas comes round. But, you know, now my niece, who seems to be a feature of this, this conversation, I mean, I, I'm having her for Christmas for the third time this mm. Christmas. It's magical watching it through a child's eyes. I'm not saying that you should feel that you've missed out. Because I think there's a lot of value in your mm. experience of not having Christmas, but there's like there's so many sides to any of these things. That's the problem. I think, like, I was thinking about you saying like missing out and stuff. I did feel left out because I wouldn't buy cards for my friends at school, and then I'd get loads, even though I'd tell people I didn't celebrate Christmas. So then I felt like I was missing out in that way, mm. and my family members really wanted me to feel as though I was missing out, so that then they could make me celebrate Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I did feel a little bit left out when family started getting back together, when they started making friends again, started getting back together around about Christmas. I was kind of like, oh, that's a bit shit. I kind of like the fact I'm not involved. I like the fact I don't have to shop and freak out about what presents I'm buying people, um, the whole thing. (laughs) So, as a Rastafarian, do you believe in God? Yes. Yes. And that's what Jar is in all the kind of reggae CDs and stuff, that's God. Yeah. It's kind of like a cross between... I mean, I'm sure some Rastafarians are going to go completely mental. But what I can work out, because it focuses mostly on the Old Testament, so I think it's kind of yeah. a cross between Judaism and Christianity. 
in the middle. Yeah. I'm highly sassy from my branch of masculinism is a prophet, whereas other branches, he's a god, or is god. I was lucky enough to go to a very liberal Rastafarian church, because women are, in the kind of orthodox Rastafarians, are treated very badly. It's, they are the temptress of, you know, they got tempted into the fate of the devil. Mm. And, I mean, there were some things, like I always had to wear a skirt to church, and during prayers I had to have my head covered, and things like that. But we had some very strong women in our church, so the men couldn't really push us around, <laughs> <laughs> which made it much better. Well, the Jamaicans in my family are evangelical Christians, so I don't know anything about Rastafarianism. Okay. So that's interesting. And I've talked to a lot of people about their faith. I mean, do you, do you believe I'm going to hell because I don't believe in God? No. That's always nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my view, on, my, my view on religion is really funny. Right. Because, I mean, I've sat for hours analysing it. As, and especially as a child because when I was in Jamaica they were very 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 strict Christians so I grew up with the fear of the devil yeah. and I remember like standing at the, my mum's room window and telling my mum that I needed to get the devil out of me which is, I find quite disturbing but, <laughs> but I kind of think that if you analyse the idea of God and the beauty of what God's supposed to be who is forgiving and loving and is a life giver then how can he send someone to hell for not believing in him and if you are good and you try to do your best in the world and you try to live as true to yourself and the universe then there's no reason for anything to go wrong if there is an afterlife well that's good I mean I'm an agnostic I'm kind of militant about it I've always thought if there is a God and he doesn't let me into heaven because I don't believe in him then he's not really worth it (laughs) that's how I see it as well like that's the thing about God is he seems to be so horrible sometimes and that's not really what God's supposed to be Mm. and sometimes I play I'm so I'm probably the same as you a bit agnostic I play with the idea that maybe like the God and the devil have been switched around and that maybe the like this all powerful knowing God is actually the devil and Uh, you know because sometimes he sounds like a right annoying horrible person well there's definitely that that, that strand often through mythology and, and religion, there is often a, a sort of sense that the devil is the one who sees the truth and that, mm. that God is the one that's, yeah, doing terrible things to people. <laughs> <laughs> you went to Occupy London <coughs> Stock Exchange. Yes. Occupy London Stock yes. Exchange, which is amazing. I wish I'd been so far. I, have, I, I, I really, really hope, pray, I will go. What was it like? We can arrange a day. Yeah, we'll go down one day. I want to. I want to do it because. Yeah. Uh, but it's just I'm just so busy at the moment, ridiculously. We'll find time. But that's terrible. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I feel morally wrong for not going. What was it like? I was there the first day, so when we ended up occupying halls, I mean, some. You've got it in my head now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> occupying the London Stock Exchange outside yeah. St Paul's. We ended up outside St Paul's. We arrived quite late because we wanted to have food and all the provisions. So the police had already formed a sort of kettle around the protesters and then we joined in behind the many lines of policemen and then they sort of formed another kettle behind us which then scared off a lot of the protesters because they had kids and all sorts of things. Mm. But it's fantastic, it's great, it's so good. The first, the first day was 
was quite scary because there was points when you weren't allowed in and you weren't allowed back so it did make the whole protest much smaller than it would have been because some of my friends they went out when they started letting people out and then they weren't allowed back in again and there was always communication between the police and the organisers and the police were always saying oh well people can come and go as they like but when you actually tried it was a problem so lots of people left or were waiting outside or it was automatically much smaller than it would have been um on the first day, which is a shame, because I think it would have had more of an impact if you could see how many people actually did turn up. Yeah, I guess so, but I think it has actually had an impact. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I went on the TUC demo, and I've been on UK mm. Uncut Actions. Yeah. And they had some effect, but the media really messed that up, Yeah. in my opinion. As someone who was there, Yeah. it wasn't the way that it was portrayed in the media. But actually, at the moment, touch wood, <laughs> I mean, the Occupy London Stock Exchange and the Occupy Wall Street have had very good media coverage. In fact, mm. even in the Telegraph and the Daily Mail. and yeah. the, I mean, I don't even think it's a left-right thing. Mm. We we all must agree, surely. I think, I think that's the great thing about it. Yeah. The majority of people, if you ask them, and not come across too dogmatic, they will say they disagree with what's going on yeah. in the financial... But they cause the crash and we're still paying them bonuses yeah nobody can agree with that surely no. like even from a like, right wing everyone's got to take responsibility for their own actions well they're not taking they're not. responsibility yeah. for their own actions and I think that's the great thing about it is it's not it's not this kind of left you know far left hippie thing that's going on where it's like love each other and everything it's kind of something that everyone can relate to and yeah. understand which is great. And there are some far left and hippies there. Yes. And I think the Occupy London Stock Exchange has, and Occupy Wall Street and all those movements have done much better in the media. Where they still have problem in the media is that people still think that it's just a load of hippies yeah. and left wing people. B- because there's probably because. And I, I mean this in the kindest, nicest possible way, but because of probably because of images of people like yourself or Sam, <laughs> the cliche is oh, it's just a load of people playing bongos, which I assume yeah. Sam was probably playing bongos, <laughs> and people, didn't it, the first night. yeah, but uh, a load of yeah. people with dreadlocks, and you've got yeah. dreadlocks. Those people are just people that we shouldn't judge. I don't judge them, but mm. I've heard so many people that do that, even left-wing people. Do you know what I mean? Even people, yeah, that yeah. say. I want to go to Occupy. Like the reason I haven't been is because I'm very busy and I've got a job, right? That's not an excuse. I know I'm I'm wrong, but that's the reason I haven't been. I haven't I haven't not been because I don't want to go and like hang out with hippies. I think yeah, I happily yeah. hang out with hippies if they if they agree with me and we agree together. Then there's like I have I'll stand with there's you know there's been veterans of wars going down there yeah. as well. I mean there's there's been loads of other people, but the yeah. the, the camera of the media will only focus yeah on I think hippies get a lot of bad press yeah <laughs> I, I, I mean. it's, it's a shame because I think they have a very beautiful outlook on life and the idea of how the world should be um, I suppose that maybe that's what is so scary for a lot of people is because then it's completely breaking all the cultural norms of society yeah um and asking for a complete turnover of it as well, which yeah. is quite scary for a lot of people. I mean, would you say that you're a hippie? Yes. <laughs> but don't tell me <laughs> I'll, I'll tell no one. But, I mean, uh, yeah, it's a strange thing. I've got a complicated relationship with hippies in that I kind of 
feel like the 60s really failed and mm. that a lot of the people who were hippies became Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Yeah. And now that's the, the world that we live in now is kind of run by rich, powerful hippies that, yeah. like, they're, they're okay because they got a lot of money and they can afford to be all peace and love, but the rest of us still want that peace and love and they're not letting us in. Yeah. So I've got no beef with people who <laughs> might be hippies now who down there yeah. occupy London Stock Exchange. I've got a beef with the people in the 60s who turn their back on a dream. Yeah, I think there's a great saying as well. I'm not going to remember the direct quote of it, um, where it's the cleverest people are left when they're young and conservatives when they're adults. Yeah, they're the bastards. They're really. the bastards, but that's what the saying goes. Something I, like that. I spent all my youth worrying that I was going to turn it, like lose my radicalism, and people always say, "And I'm I'm thirty, right? Mm. I'm seeing people lose their radicalism. I'm seeing my friends lose their radicalism. I don't begrudge them that because I know them and I've known mm. them, and I'm I'm much less polarized than I was when I was fifty. Because when I was fifteen, I was in militant labour. I was uh, I've sold. Uh, left-wing newspapers on the streets of Cardiff. That probably was one of the reasons I got bullied. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm no longer even, I don't even call myself a socialist anymore, I'm, a, I'm an anarchist. Um, but just saying that word, I'm, I mean, they've put, they've put anarchists on the, the mm-hmm. terrorist list. Now. Yeah, they have, haven't they? It's, it's one of those things. And it's, it's really funny how it's, um, the idea of anarchy is completely like, misconstrued as yeah. well. It upsets it's, me. It's very bad. But then I suppose that's kind of like what happened with communism as well. True. It's kind of like, you know, you've got the militant, horrible, weird communism. Well, Soviet Russia was not communist No, Russia. not at all. <laughs> but now that's what all people think of, is Soviet Russia. If you were to define yourself politically, what would you call yourself? An anarchist. I struggle with it, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm all for that. <laughs> um, I really do. And I think it's... It, I think a lot of people, if they analyse themselves, they would realise they are too. I think... Uh, well, obviously I would agree. With you. <laughs> so was, I mean, you know, there's the, the one thing this programme can't have is balance because it's a totally subjective thing. So it's, it's easier for me to be balanced when I'm talking to people who are Liberal Democrats or uh, socialists or whatever because I don't agree with them completely. <laughs> <laughs> what led you to your... My current... Yeah. kind of viewpoint I think I've only really started calling myself an anarchist since moving back to London and I think it's about kind of doing the doing the research to finding out what it is and I mean people can work like people will always be able to function whether there's hierarchy or not there doesn't need to be hierarchy for society to continue mm-hmm. at all um, and you will see it as well, like when there's a war-torn area, people get together and they start rebuilding their lives. And there's not there's not a hierarchy there. There's just mm-hmm. a group of people trying to sort their lives out. And there isn't necessarily a need for it because we're social beings. At the end of the day, people like being around people. So therefore, you will everyone will create a kind of a social structure that will enable everyone to function as a community even without hierarchy that's the thing people think that anarchy means no structures mm. and actually of course there's structures there has to be structures to to 
have society exist, but yeah. they don't have to be hierarchical. Yeah. And they don't have to be unequal. Mm. And I mean, I, you know, I've got a very complicated kind of view on anarchy. I'm, I call myself a pragmatic anarchist because I think that anarchy is the goal. Yeah. But I'll have, I, I'm not going to get rid of the welfare state. Yeah. Until we can get rid of it in a way that it doesn't drop loads, doesn't of, people drop loads of people out. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That, that, that of, of course, I'm not against the idea of universal health care. I'm against a hierarchical system providing that health care. Yeah. But I much prefer that hierarchical system providing that health care to no care yeah. and private business yes. providing that health care, which is happening now. So yes. that's the irony that the anarchists now, like yourself, like me, we're going on protests that are to to save yeah. some of the things that we don't agree with. Yes. But because we agree with the fact that human beings... Should be equal. Yeah, and and should be looked after. Mm. And, and the other thing I find is that, I mean, the reason I have a kind of weird relationship with the word anarchist, kissed, and I, it's weird, I, I only really started calling myself an anarchist once I moved to London. <laughs> oh, I don't know what that says about London. But, <laughs> it's pretty anarchy. Yeah, but I mean, I'm qu- quite capable of being friends with people who aren't anarchists. Mm. I'm perfectly capable of, of 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 seeing every human being as just a human being trying mm. to get through life in whatever way they can. Yeah, because it's hard, I think, life, yeah. and it's just you know, it's, it's, the world is 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 not equal and we're just trying to do the best and I'm not going to judge anyone like mm. and I'm not a very good anarchist like I was saying to you earlier on I drink coca-cola I'm not very good <laughs> but I see that us all as just humans mm. we all make mistakes we all do yeah and I, and I sometimes feel that the left and the right don't do that enough no. that both sides they look at each other and, oh, yeah. yeah and yeah I think it's quite funny because it my old job that's going to be new for a while. <laughs> I made friends with a member of the Conservative Party who's on the bench. Um, and she doesn't know my own viewpoints, which is quite funny. But I know hers. And I suppose in that weird sense that I've sort of formed a kind of power thing because I know more about her than she knows about me. But let's not go down there. <laughs> but that's what I feel sad about. Like, if anybody... Like, if certain colleagues I know, if people I've known hear this conversation and they can i'm releasing it on the internet they may start to think of me differently Mm. but i'm the same person that they've been speaking to and i don't think of them as kind of lesser or stupid or dangerous or any of these things and i'm i'm not like i'm not i'm i'm totally against any form of violent struggle really i I sympathize with why people do it I don't Mm. judge people for violence I think human beings are violent and Mm. that's something that they do but I'm never I'm non-violent in my advocation of how we should proceed just saying the word anarchist makes people think that I'm going to be this angry person that dresses up in black at protests and burn things and they're not doing anarchy a good no not at all not at all it's very militant Incredibly militant and also quite scary when you see them because you're just like ah. I'm scared of them and I, yeah exactly yeah it's it's funny because it's like I'm sure if we had a conversation I don't think they'd think I was an anarchist at all mm. they they would probably assume that I'm not and stupid yeah that's how um, I think that's how I feel as well yeah <laughs> um, 
and I know that like this person at work she probably would hate me if I told her turned around and went well I'm an anarchist I think she'd probably completely freak out <laughs> exactly but then there's this also this other lovely thing of once you do get to know people to a certain level you can say you're an anarchist yes. to them and they will accept you yeah like I know people who you know in these conversations who certainly are not anarchists who because I've got to know them to this level they, they don't you know we're just human beings and that's how I feel about them yeah the other thing I, I find problematic about anarchy is there's a very big movement currently I'm t- obviously completely against the state because mm. I'm an anarchist but there's this idea that we have to remain anonymous to protect ourselves from the state Mm. and this project's the opposite of that yeah. I'm putting absolutely all of me out there Yeah, people can judge me they can, I mean they can judge me however they like but I think that in order to have no hierarchy you have to get rid of anonymity mm. I understand what you're saying what do you think about that though it's a complicated one it is complicated I think especially kind of I'm thinking about it in the sense of now mm. And I should be too, I'm supposed to be a pragmatic one. (laughs) If you have a lot of anonymous people who all support anarchists and they won't, in their work faces, say they're anarchists or won't actually communicate their ideas to each other, no one knows how widespread anarchy is. You wouldn't know. And I think that's kind of a fundamental problem because you have to be able to have a discussion with people and chat to people and find out what each other believe in to be able to kind of go actually we're on the same page here you know and how can you throw the state if you don't know who's an anarchist yeah exactly and also it's like feminism or communism probably there's loads of people who are feminists and communists who'd never called themselves communists or feminists and I'm sure there's loads of people who are anarchists who'd never called themselves anarchists I only call myself an anarchist because I've read about it and Mm. found out what it is yeah I'm aware that when I use that word it totally turns people off yeah but I have to have a way to describe myself. Yeah. But then language is a kind of... It keeps us separate as well as draws us together. together. Yeah, that's very true. And you get that with feminism as well. Yeah. So like at work when I say, oh, I'm a feminist, you do get that kind of funny little flicker. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm not... I'm not I, I was brought up a f- feminist, I guess. But I, I, I don't call myself a feminist because I'm a man and I don't really think that it's men's place to call themselves feminist I, I guess if I was going to say anything I, I'm a humanist, I'm an equalitist mm. that's a bad word I would argue with that, I think men can be feminists no, I know I know <laughs> men who call themselves feminists, <laughs> there's one in the house that we're in, Yeah. at least one probably two, no? Anyone. Anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite a funny one feminism's great no, I'm, 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 it, it is. I've been telling my girlfriend that she should call herself a feminist for years. And I think she probably does now, but you know, that, that's what I mean though. It's a weird thing for a man to say that. Yeah, well, it's not that weird. I think it is. Well, maybe it's, if you're. If you're kind of. Yeah, if, maybe if you're not me. <laughs> it's, 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 but, but I mean, and that's another problem with non hierarchical structures, because I believe in them, mm. but sometimes I worry that. It's not human nature to have non-hierarchical structures. Yeah, I've had that a few times. You know when you're in a group of people and you're all trying to decide what to do and no one's willing to say what they want to do and have a discussion about it and then someone will pipe up and say, I think we should do this. And then for the rest of the evening, that person is the one in control. Yeah. And 
I find it incredibly frustrating. It really makes me really angry when that happens because it's just like, come on, guys, let's just talk about it. Let's let's have a discussion and decide equally what we all want to do. It's almost as if people want to nominate someone to be the leader a lot of the time. Yeah. And it might be just because the leader is a scary prospect for everyone. Do you think that there is a difference in nature between men and women? Like, in terms of feminism and non-hierarchical structures as well, this is something I'm, I worry about. Like, if I'm in a group of men, it's, it's, it's going to be competitive. I can't turn that element of myself off. I can only manage it. Mm. Um, I think... Because if you get a group of girls as well, there is competitiveness. Yeah, but it's a there. different kind of thing going on. Like, mm. in the way that men and women interact with each other as well. It's different, yes. I see what you're saying. I think, know, like, I think it's difficult to separate what's been socially con- constructed yeah, so hard. and what is real. Mm. I think that's the hardest thing. And until you are able to completely dismantle what the social constructs are, then you can find out that there's actually a true 100% difference between, not even, like, you know, 10% difference between male and female. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, it's only the hormones that run through our body, which will affect the way we behave. And they're massively, that is a massive yes. difference. One of the things that I often say is society thinks of women as being the hormonal ones because mm. there's a massive difference in hormonal balances during yeah. a month. Yeah. But actually, I always think that men are the hormonal ones because I think it's, it's every six minutes or something that we're being flooded with another <laughs> rush of hormones or something like that really? yeah it's something crazy if we're continually getting testosterone all the time then we're always hormonal so mm. women might be hormonal for one week men are hormonal for the whole month yeah that's not good that, <laughs> that, i mean that's what makes war like yeah. on a I know, going from the micro to the macro like that's what makes war that's 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 what makes domestic violence that's what makes mm. all these things that I wish didn't happen, mm. but I can't deny that I'm a man. I can't deny that there are elements of me that have these complicated things. Yeah. Like, I can't deny that, that in general, the women I know, even as enlightened as we all are in our social groups, the women generally do more of the nurturing, houseworky type stuff than the men do. Because that would be, I'm pretty sure that's a social concept. Do you think so? Yes. I think that's the problem is like the nurturing, the the cleaning the dishes, the cooking the food, blah 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 blah. I think a lot of that is socially constructed. Behaviour is the one that I struggle with most. You see, because it's a weird thing. One of the books that inspired me to be an anarchist is The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. Okay. There's two books, there was that and V for Vendetta by Alan Moore. And in the dispossessed it's a kind of story about it's a science fiction story you've got a, an anarchist moon where the anarchists live and you've got the planet that this it orbits which is where rampant consumerist capitalism is and it's both those worlds are hard and it's mm. about someone going from the moon to the capital and being seduced by it mm. and then also finding out how terrible it is and seeing how even though it was hard to be an anarchist on that moon, which, which and, and the significant thing is the moon's got no... It's a hard place to live, mm. whereas it's easy... There's, it's Not more easy. fertile on the... On, and it, but there's a, there's a sort of... There's a section in that where it's non-hierarchical completely, but then 
the woman in the relationship gets pregnant and she says something along I can't remember the direct quote but the way they talk about it they don't say capitalism they say propertarianism okay it, the, they, they say propertarian because it's all about property there's mm. no money there's just property and when she gets pregnant she wants to have a safe environment for the child to be brought up and she says something along the lines of I wonder if there isn't something inside women that is inherently proprietarian because I want a safe environment for the child and this is it's mm. written by a woman so she can say that stuff <laughs> that I, I would never have even thought of it if I mm. hadn't have read that book but when I look at the way that the women I know including the one I'm in a relationship with for over 10 years and the way the men I know generally speaking the women care more about their environment than mm. the men do yes like and that I think leads to the inequality of the women doing all the housework and the men not doing like that mm. like I'm not saying that it should lead to that I'm not saying there isn't ways we can mm. negotiate that but I know for a fact that if my house isn't if the house that I'm living in isn't tidy then Jen cannot just sort of automatically just kind of just, she needs it to be tidy she needs the house and I'm not saying that Jen is all women there are mm. lots of I know some really messy women my mum was really messy in fact I take after my mum and that's the problem <laughs> in the household mm. but I guess I'm saying what I'm, what I'm asking I just think you're very wise is do you think I mean do you think that uh, I think yeah. I, yeah, I think I'm trying. I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah, um, Stop me if I'm wrong. I think that I'll still argue that I think it's taught. Yeah. From the moment you are a young girl growing up, you're given dolls, you're given little cookers, you're given, you know, all these things. Like your, your Barbie teaches you to like like clothes, your and be beautiful. Your mm. your your home cooking set teaches you that you must learn to cook your baby teaches you to hold a baby dress a baby push it around in a pram whereas boys don't really get that so they don't have to think about those things and I think it's also quite a lot of the time accidentally or subconsciously brought in as well so an example of that is my brother I had to help out with the cooking and things quite a lot so I had to do some cooking and provide a meal for the household but my brother never really had to and I know that my mum is would hate to think that she's treated us differently, but she has. And also, like, going out late at night, my mum wanted to pick me up after I'd been out, whereas my brother could... I refused. But my brother didn't have that social... that boundary on him. And I think that... If that's been taught to you from a very young age, I think it then becomes instinctive. Um, and that's why I, I, it's really hard to, to separate... taught social norms and the differences between male and female. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's really hard to separate them. I mean, I played with... Well, no, I, I mean, I, I think all my dolls were animals. Mm. But I still had things mm. that I looked after. I, I, and I, I don't think I was brought up with, you know, guns and things like that and that whole kind of... I I don't know. It's mm. a really, really hard it's one. It's very difficult. But I think my instincts 
tell me that there is something inherently unequal in terms of biology like that we have different biological systems and so mm. we're very like there are, I've heard recently there's a lot of studies saying that you know men and women are so much closer to each other in the way we think the way we are Mm-hmm. Than, than than has previously been thought. Yeah. But we still have a kind of unequalness where women have children, mm. men can leave. Yeah. Women can't can't leave that. They have to have that in their in their body, and then they have to give birth to that child, and then they have a, a bonding process that is, yeah, by its nature stronger initially in the first years of life than it is later on. I was brought up by my dad as, as well as my mum. My dad was kind of the primary person who brought me up. He was the, the person who stayed at home. My mum went out to work. Mm. But still, I think that there's this... I don't know. I think um, like there's been proven that, that babies will recognise if their dad's about when, when you're pregnant. Babies will recognise the dad's voice. Hmm. And things like that. So the bond is there. Although um, I mean, I don't. And always will I, I don't be. mean to suggest it is. No. I, I mean, I've run dads groups. I've seen fantastic dads yeah. with really close bonds with their children. And women do leave their kids as well after they've been born, and have left not as often as men have. True. Mainly, I, I think a lot of it is to do. Well, I don't want to encourage women to leave their children, but um, is to do with kind of like social outcast. If someone found out that you left your children as a woman it would be more frowned on than as a man it shouldn't be more frowned on that's right yeah so that's going to make you it's going to be harder to leave your children because of that but if you're a new mother and you leave your child then that child can't be breastfed that child Mm. can't there are things that that child can't have yeah and I'm not saying it's right for men to leave Mm. it's not right for men to leave no but it's easy. It's easier. It is easier. And that is unequal. Do you see that's what I mean? That's true, I see what you're saying, yes. And so that's the problem, that men and women are not better or worse than each other. We're, but I think human beings do what's easy. Mm. Sometimes. Yeah. And it's not as easy for women to leave their children as it is for men to. And... It is easy for a man to impregnate a woman without really considering it. That's true. And it's not easy, easy. for a woman to be impregnated and not consider it. Yeah. Like, you true. have to make a decision. Yes. And you know, everyone's aware of the... But then, like, it's one of the... It's easy for a man to to do that. It shouldn't be, because it's their genes going into that child. But when you look at yeah. animals, like, there is no... It doesn't matter if a monkey leaves. Like, mm. the way that animals inter- engage with each other, there is inequality, but there's no consciousness, so they don't feel anything about it, it mm. there's n- and there's no kind of emotional scarring from that complicated kind of... Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of studies of, like, monkeys saying, you know, there's a lot of infidelity and all sorts of things happen, and, you know, the, the beta males are fathering the alpha males kids all the time but mm. no, there's no there's no knowledge of that yeah like we're we know that the better situation like well me and you and a lot of yeah. people do the better situation is for us to all be equal 
Yeah. But are we designed biologically to fit that system that we want to impose on human beings? Or are we biologically changing against it? Yeah. You mean, what do you mean by that? Well, okay, that system's there in monkeys and things like that, mm-hmm. but, you know, we have biologically changed over time. Completely thought of this on the spot. Yeah, so that's fine. Bear with me. That's fine. I'm doing the same. <laughs> <laughs> we are changing a lot of the time. We probably have changed a lot since our Victorian ancestors. Our um, attitudes have changed. Yeah. Definitely. And I think over time, but we've got taller. Yes, that's true. And maybe we're getting to a point where we're starting to see equality as a a need within society that will then affect our biological makeup of the journey through evolution. I don't know. I guess so. I mean, the thing you can say is that women have achieved greater and greater levels of equality Mm. as technology and other things have allowed allowed that to happen yeah. in a way like people are always saying the pill is the biggest thing mm. the, I don't I don't know if the pill is necessarily the symbol of the liberation that people think it is necessarily because it's a different you're you're then supplementing your hormones yeah but it's it the has certainly has whether you want to have children or not which it, is exactly. brilliant it means that people don't have six children <laughs> well no I mean I'm not against contraception um, no no I don't think I do are. question whether the pill is as liberating as people think. I know a lot of people who've had very bad experiences mm. with it in the long term. And it's it, poisoning all our water. Ex- yeah, oh <laughs> God, yeah, yeah, there's that. Now it's not as dependent on physical labour. Like that, That's one of the ways that I think we're inherently, unfortunately, unequal. Men mm. are stronger than women. Like I often think, well, it's terrible. I, I, I never condone domestic violence, mm. but the reason that it happens more men to women is because women can't yep. do it as easily to men as they can I mean there's some there are there yeah. are domestic there is domestic violence by women on men there's domestic violence for women on other women mm. but just in a fight mm. well in a fight between us I'm going to win yeah. in a fight between someone a bit bigger than you I'll probably lose against like that, Liz you'll probably lose yeah exactly there you go, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But, 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 but it's but the strongest man versus the strongest woman the man's going to win. Yeah. That's not equal. But could you not argue that's through generations and generations and generations and generations of social conditioning? Because if you have, for as long as we can remember, men doing all the hard labour work, which yeah. was probably way, way back when we started moving rocks around, then the muscles are going to develop over time and that's going to follow through that gene structure I don't know because if you look at the other and animals even like social selection as well like you know women tend to go for strong men well in the past anyway because they could move the rocks around true whereas men tend to go for small women maybe for aesthetic reasons I don't know but maybe there's a proper reason for it as well so that would again would cause just natural selection of maybe stronger more powerful women just dying out in the human line Possibly. I mean, if you look at animals, generally the male animals are stronger than the female animals. But I guess if you go right back to the start, that's because women have to give give mm. birth. Met, so that naturally means that the men have to be the hunters and the women the gatherers because you, you have to give birth. So you have to be in a home sort of situation, mm. and then you're closer to you know. So, if you're yeah. gathering, you can do that and have a child. You can't yeah. hunt and have a child in your arms and breastfeed. Yeah. 
So I guess if you go right back to the beginning, you could say, well, that's social social selection right from the start. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, I do think we are biologically unequal, but I hope that we can use our minds and our consciousness to overcome that lack of equality. Yeah. I, I hope. Certainly, I... It's a hard one, though, because whether it's social conditioning or biological, women are attracted to strong men, generally, and men are generally attracted to smaller women and mm. more submissive women. and that's a Yeah, <laughs> automatically causes the funny little thing to happen. And there's no solution, and that's the problem. Like, I want there to be a solution. Well, there's been arguments that over time men will get more geeky because they're the ones that earn a lot more money. <laughs> Geeks are in charge of the uh, cultural world at the moment. Yeah, and that will be, you know, the uh, instinctive want. But the, the problem with that is geek, geeks still beat their wives, some of them. Do you yeah, know what I mean? that's it's, true. It's, it's, <laughs> they're, 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 as much right. as I'd like geeks to be nice, <laughs> no. they're just as possible to be, yeah. to be dickheads. And as, through education. Through education and through teaching children how to behave here's my big thing I don't wow I don't like being a man because I don't like what men do and I don't like the way that I often like I frequently feel because I don't know if it's social, I don't know if it's biological, kind of irrelevant. I don't like the unequalness that is instinctively in me. Mm. I guess, like, I mean, I'm just realising this now too, but if what Ursula Le Guin's talking about is women being inherently caring about property because they have to give birth to children and they need a safe place to Mm. do it, what I don't like is what I think is inherent in men, which is war mm. and violence and competition. Mm. And I guess I'm looking for a solution to that that isn't going to come in this conversation. No. But... It's yeah. one of those... It's funny, though, isn't it? Because it's kind of like... I'm sure some of it is definitely to do with the ideas of what a man and a female is. Because, I mean, you get warrior Amazonian ladies that go around beating people up as much as oh, yeah. the next person and, and they pretty ferocious women. so I think I think it's it, I think masculinity and femininity is a lot more flexible than we give it credit for I hope so I certainly think that men are very capable of feeling emotions they do I know they just it I just manifests I. in really strange ways <laughs> yeah <laughs> because they're not supposed to maybe that's it but I mean I'm really down with feeling emotions I'm uncomfortable with feeling emotions. What I'm not comfortable with is feeling what I consider to be male emotions. <laughs> like I'm fine talking about my feelings, but I don't like it when I'm feeling hate and anger and rage. And There's a complication in terms of sexuality, I think, as well, for men, which I think comes from the amount of hormones we have fighting for mm. our bodies. I suppose it's the same when I hate feeling like suddenly bursting in tears for not very much reason. I'm like, oh, I'm doing that pathetic thing, you know. And I think probably both genders have these different things that they associate to be what is the bad side side of each gender that probably everyone can feel and experience. Um, Yeah. 
I, I'd agree with that. Although I like quite often burst into tears, uh, and I, I don't like that either for the opposite reason. Like, and I'm, be, I, 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 I'm like, I'm being like a woman, and then I'm like, that's fine. Why am I even thinking that thought? Why is that thought even in my head? And yeah. that's social. That's yeah, definitely social. That's definitely social. And I think those things are the ones that need to break down, and then we can see if we can work with our stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, God. Well, I tell you what. I've not covered half the things that I wanted to talk about in this conversation, but it's been really fascinating to me. Hopefully it will be fascinating to other people. Uh, It's been a real cerebral one, which surprised me, but in a nice way. And yeah, you didn't drink as much of your drink as as you thought, (laughs) I'm drunker than I thought I would be. (laughs) Which is a disclaimer, if I've talked, I think I've talked more than I do in some conversations, so I apologise if I've taken your time up. That's not been very equal. (laughs) (laughs) The last question that I ask people is, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Which is really weird in this context. If I ever get anything published, I'd like to plug myself. (laughs) Yeah, well, people should look out for you, definitely. Yeah. And also, you know, Occupy and the facts. That's it. Everyone should go down. Great thing. And turn up. And I tell you what, we'll we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, I'll arrange to go with you. Yeah. That's the other thing, I've got no one to go with, so... Yeah, we'll go along. And even if it's just to, like, the university and listen to some people talk, we'll learn some interesting stuff. Wicked. Cool, we'll do that. And I've gone wild over time. <laughs> fantastic conversation. Thanks very much. The last thing I say is, would you like to say goodbye to the audience? Goodbye. Bye. Sadly, Natty and I never made it down together to occupy... LSX. We tried a few times to arrange a date to do so, but one or the other of us failed to be free on those dates each time. I certainly will try to get down to similar protests in the future. I do aspire to be politically active, I promise. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA podcast you can find it on Facebook it's getting better acquainted have a search on Facebook and like it or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk you can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing there are lots of ways to get better a Stitcher Smart Radio app you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. If you enjoy listening to Getting Better Acquainted, that's great. I'm really grateful to you for joining me on this journey through conversation. I make this show for free, and that's how I want this show to be, a free show. But I do want more people to hear the conversation. So if you could share this with people that you know, that would be great. And also, if you could leave some iTunes feedback on iTunes, telling people that you like the show and telling them what it is and what it's about, that would also be really great because that helps to push me up the iTunes charts and all that sort of thing. It increases the amount of people who might hear it. Also... I've got the 100th episode of Getting Better Acquainted coming up next year, which is really exciting. In fact, I think we've probably had more than 100 episodes already, 
because some of the episodes I don't number, they might have been two-parters, they might have been getting better acquainted extras. I wanted to do something to mark the occasion of it being the 100th episode and I finally come up with a plan. So first of all, after episode 99, there'll be a week of Getting Better Acquainted episodes going from Monday to Friday and they're going to be five live conversations I recorded at the Invisible Picture Palace which is a glass house in Wapping run by In The Dark Radio. I did five really great conversations there in November in front of a live audience so I'm going to put them in the run up to the 100th episode. They won't be counted as numbers though because that's Getting Better Acquainted live and New Strand. So what will the 100th episode be? Well, for the 100th episode, I'm going to throw a party inviting a lot of people who've been on Getting Better Acquainted and I'm going to play them some clips and we're going to talk about the show. I'm also going to try and get people who've been on who can't make it to send in some sound clips and I'm going to read out the email correspondence which people have sent in to me and there have been a few and I'm really pleased that people are reaching out to me in this way and this is going to be my chance to reach back and to acknowledge that communication so if you have something you'd like to say about getting better acquainted that you'd like to tell me please send me an email and I'll read it out as part of the 100th episode but also I'd really like to hear from listeners about what your favourite episodes are or any moments, specific moments would be even better of episodes that you've really enjoyed because that will help me wade through 100 episodes of Getting Better Acquainted.